Hey everyone, welcome back to the third installment of the Asking for a Parent podcast. Thanks very much for everyone for listening and downloading. The response so far has been absolutely fantastic. And I hope, like myself, you've found the conversation so far insightful and maybe even picked up some advice along the way. Anyway, it gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest this week to the Asking for a Parent podcast. As soon as this lady begins to speak, you'll find that she's instantly recognizable, not only because of her lilting Canadian accent, but also because she's one of the most identifiable voices on Irish radio. So I'm sure it comes as no surprise to anyone when I say my guest today is Today FM's host of Weekend Breakfast, the wonderful Alison Curtis. Alison has kindly agreed to have me on her Weekend Breakfast show a few times. And no matter what the topic, I always feel that we have a meaty and meaningful discussion. And it's for that reason that when I was doing my wish list for possible guests for the Asking for a Parent podcast, Alison was one of the first names on the sheet. She commonly comments on parenting issues in her Irish Examiner column, which is always a great read. And Alison shows also has a segment dedicated for children, which I think is one of the bravest things you can do is to work live with children on air. But Alison is a uniquely containable and, and relatable presence on air. And when it comes to children and their role in the world, uh, I really think she has a great understanding. So I'm delighted to have her on the podcast today. Alison, you're very welcome. Oh my gosh, thank you. I love that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> all true. It's easy, it's easy. It flows when it's true. How are you keeping? How are you doing through all this? Yeah, pretty good. Um I think like everybody, you know, the initial lockdown, there was some bizarre novelty to it that kind of helped kind of the adrenaline keep people kind of going through that period. Um, It was tricky, obviously, for parents who were balancing the homeschooling and working. And then I think we had a kind of a light relief in the summer because the weather was good for everybody. My feeling there was I was sad I didn't get back to Canada for three weeks, which I would do every summer. So I I missed that. And then I think my, when it came to anxiety around all this actually came back when school returned, because that was the kind of this, this part of our life that wasn't contained anymore. Whereas my husband's work is quite contained. I'm quite contained. We live very carefully around the virus. So school was the introduction to me potentially to something I didn't have control over and being a control freak. So that's, you know, I had to settle in there the first week, but I was quite anxious and now I've settled in again. And I think, I think everybody is just thinking of, you know, take it a week at a time, do your best to not put pressure on yourselves and just try and get through it and keep your families happy and healthy. Absolutely. I think that reflects similar to my experience in, in terms of the busyness of things has really been since September, since the reboarding. And I, I kind of, I feel We'd, my phone wasn't really hopping with interest over the, the lockdown period, but since in the last three or four weeks, and I think as we kind of worry about the numbers going up again, yeah. there really a lot of worry out there for people. Um, and I think a lot of people are, are, str- are finding it difficult to manage. And I think a lot of things we would normally do for mental fitness, we're not able to do. And that's yeah. not helping things either. But um, yeah, and I think for parents, look, it has been dr- tricky and I think any parents I've been talking to is kind of really worried about returning to the homeschooling thing when the weather isn't nice and the evenings are darker and we've got talks of, you know, the, the normal flu coming through and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think what you've explained there is probably similar to a lot of people and certainly I, it's relatable to me. But, um, okay, so so the format of the podcast, Alison, is that uh, the first question and the last question I have are going to be the same for every guest. And whatever happens in between that is up to us. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I think the first question is probably three parts. And the first thing I, I wanted to ask you before we get into any questions was to, to tell me who's at home and introduce us to your family. 
the second question was what your template for parenting was growing up. And the third part is what represents your value system when it comes to parenting. So once we have those three things established, we, we'll kick it off. But so who is at home? Tell me about your family. In my family, we have what my daughter calls the triangle family because there's three points. There's three people. It's my husband, Anton Hagerty, and my nine-year-old, but acting like a 15-year-old daughter, Joan. And uh, our family, I suppose we were unique in a way that um, I live apart from my twin sister. So we, we pretty much consider her to be part of the nuclear family as well. So it's kind of three adults and a child actually kind of let's be honest it's two adults karen and tony and two kids myself and joan (laughs) basically and yeah like we're really you're a twin allison yeah so we're very close uh so yeah and then my twin sister is uh on her own so she's not married she doesn't have children so she's very like the nuclear part of our family and my daughter's relationship with her is incredibly close like it's remarkable it's really remarkable despite having the ocean between us it's it's really really close so yeah so we're we're unique family as well in that i suppose from a parenting point of view i lost both my parents when i was a teenager so my dad when i was 14 and my mom when i was 19 so having joan as a mother without a mother has created an interesting dynamic in that uh, and, and sadly as well, two aunts of mine who I was really, really close to passed away before she was born. So the maternal or parental figures in my life for advice weren't around. So I have really, this sounds maybe cocky, but I've surprised myself in that I've navigated it the way that I have in that I haven't had that upper echelon of you know family to rely on for support. But I really rely on parents as well, like parents who are parents of my daughter's friends just for bouncing things around and it's been an incredible like really lovely experience to be first-time parents together and support one another that way if that makes sense so that's how we've kind of navigated it I think of us as an extremely close household like you know my uh again the parents who are parents of my daughter's friends they always comment and people will see us even this woman spotted us on Instagram and I I wasn't like I was oh my god it was hideous she sent me afterwards I saw you in marks I was like I had dust in my hair like you know anyway but she spotted us and she's like Alison I really was struck by you and Joan your relationship so she's someone who saw it from afar who doesn't know us and she's like I could tell you were just so in love with each other and we are very close and she's Joan's equally close to her father so it's lovely Wow, what a fantastic dynamic. I, did, I had no idea, Alison. I, I had a, I knew you were a twin uh, and grew up as a twin. Um, I didn't realize that you'd lost your parents so early. I mean, growing up as a twin and having an only daughter, what, what's that like? Yeah, I and I've written about this a good bit and I struggled with it, honestly. And in Canada, we have, my sister and I have a cousin who we call kind of like a triplet because he was born only six weeks before us and we kind of fight like triplets. So I do now. <laughs> and so the three of us, so he has a daughter as well. Just, just again, in quotations, the one. And I struggled with it for such a long time. And then one time we were back in Canada and he's like, you know what, Alison, like he was always quite all right with it, but his wife, she wanted to up more children because there is the pressure to have this ideal of a family. What does, you know, what does it mean ideally? And it was always sold to us as four or more kind of thing. And she was like on her daughter's sixth birthday. She was like, I just 
accepted it. I just had this moment. I went up to the attic. I got the clothes. I got the baby bits and I just put them away. I said, that's, this is our family. And it's like clockwork when Joan turned six, so it's three years ago. So six years is a long time to kind of be struggling with something that you feel guilty about when it comes to having one child. But on the eve of her sixth birthday, I went, that's it. And it was also the same time Joan called us the triangle family. I went, that is it. This is our family. And look at the amount of people in the world who don't have what we have and really want what we have. So suck it up, Buttercup Curtis. And like, you have a gorgeous family. You've got the the most ridiculously fun daughter. You're very lucky. That's that. That's life. Accept it. You know? So it was on her sixth birthday that I was like, I have to get, I have to get rid of that guilt. I really do. And build into Joan's life relationships that are meaningful and that will hopefully be for life and hopefully carry her through the difficult times when they are older and she has to shove two parents around in a wheelchair or whatever it is that she's got that support to help out with that dynamic shifting and but that's years from now but you know to build that into her that resilience into her now and i know this is probably a bit off point as well but i'm just intriguing interest what was it like growing up as a twin we uh karen would say she didn't enjoy it as much as i did <laughs> because <laughs> With all twins, and you know this so well, there is a dynamic, there's a dominant one, and there's the not so dominant one. And we always made fun of, even throughout high school and university, we're like, oh, Allison's the evil one, Karen's the good one. And Karen is just, um, Karen is a person who is very like my father. Uh, They walk amongst us. They are different to us. They are extremely good to the core and they are like I it's very hard for me to explain what my father was like because he was unlike anybody else and years and years and years later at my grandmother's funeral people turned up to hope that Karen and I were there to tell us the things he did for them and that's you know that he passed away in 1989 and this was in 2000 and whatever four or five so like he like he had a lasting impression on people and I feel my sister does the same and her kindness uh, so the two of us fought a lot growing up because I was, you know, very determined personality. I was a big personality. I wanted things my own way. And obviously she was quietly determined and didn't want things to go my way all the time too. So we had a funny dynamic growing up, but we were still always close. But after our parents passed away, our dynamic got even more uh, entrenched, I suppose, in that we became almost parents to one another. And certainly in a, in legal terms, we ca- became almost like spouses because we had a property we inherited and all that kind of stuff. And we dealt with their passings quite differently. So uh, that kind of created a bit of a misunderstanding between us for a little while, but always a closeness. And uh, easily since our early 20s, we've, we're insanely close. Like we literally, if I don't hear from her for four hours, I assume the worst, <laughs> like text. Like we, you, you, if you looked at our phones, you'd be like, that's ridiculous amount of texting, like every day, multiple times. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and did fabulous. that mean that you had to grow up fairly quickly, Alison? I think it did. Like, I think I don't give myself enough credit on that front. I always kind of I'm always like, oh, I'm so dependent on, you know, Karen emotionally or Tony or this or that, or, oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. Sometimes I think that voice surfaces. And then I go, well, hang on a minute now. You actually moved to a country where I knew two people quite casually, like I met them in Toronto and moved over here and said, let's just be friends. Thankfully, we still are. Um, And set up a whole life, like a career and a family and a home. So I think I undersell myself there a little bit. But uh, yeah, we had to grow up pretty quickly. Like at 19, when everything is gone, your your childhood home is gone, your remaining parent is gone. You you do grow up very quickly, for sure. And what age were you when you moved to Ireland, Alison? I was 24. 
So yeah, don't do the math. How long did I say I've lived here for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was 24, long time ago. So you moved over to Ireland really kind of without a lot of support or without a lot of direction around that time. Yeah, and I, I guess whenever people kind of go, why'd you move? I, I never have an answer for it. But then I think as I get older and I kind of understand, I suppose, trauma a little bit better from losing parents, I probably was running away like a little bit. That's probably what it was. So I'd finished university. I had a ticket that was six months long. I was actually planning on going to do a master's in Glasgow, but then I landed in radio and I was like, this business seems like a lot of fun. doesn't seem like a real job. Let's see where it goes. And so I just stayed. Like I'd had no intention of staying for that long. And then a few years later I met my husband and then each year would go by and I go, I wonder, will I ever, uh, no, I don't think I'll go back. Now I don't think, I don't fit in Canada the same way that I do here now. So, um, but I think when I look back to the actual moment where I go, I think I need to leave Canada for a while. It must've been a bit of a, must've been a bit of a running away thing. Must've been. And in terms of the the difference between growing up in Canada versus growing up in Ireland, what would be the the standout differences for you? I think of my daughter's childhood versus mine quite a bit. And I feel, again, it's this parental guilt, which we're trying to steer away from. I feel in Canada, we had so much space. That's what we had. And uh, I tell people about the house I grew up in and the fact that we had two homes and lots of property and people kind of go, oh my God, like, were you the princess of Ontario? And I'm like, no. <laughs> and my dad was a civil servant and my mother worked at home. So we had one income. But it was just, you know, the 80s in Canada and like our house was nearly 4,000 square feet for four people and had seven bedrooms, wow. but we would not be, I mean, it was a gorgeous house, you know, but not totally unusual in that respect. Like you'd have a lot of four people families with four bedrooms, very easily, possibly five, so especially in the town we grew up in. It was like big old limestone buildings. So I think about space for her and I think about how I've limited space for her in Ireland. And I do have a bit of guilt about that. But as far as being as a unit, my parents were the same as uh, with Karen and I, as we are with Joan and that we, it was the four of us always together, but we were lucky in that our extended family, as in mom's sisters, she was very close to dad had sisters as well, very close to most of them did live in the same hometown. And then really, especially the two families were very close as in, my mom's sister and my dad's sister were qu quite close. Like, so it was very intertwined and it was lovely. So, but my strongest memories growing up is the four of us. Like we always were so, like my sister and I didn't really go away or if there were sleepovers and play dates, they were at our house. So it was like, my mom was a mom and she was very happy being that and providing for us in that respect that there was always room at our house for our friends to come. So that was the direction, the flow of the friendship. And yeah, dad was so involved, like really involved. And when I talk about, him and I did a piece on the Irish Examiner about this as well recently. Like he was the one that spoke to my sister and I about our periods and what was happening. And when I tell people in Ireland that they're like, "Oh my God, my dad fainted once when my bra fell out of the laundry basket." Like it was like <laughs> like the contrast. Like he was a and some men and I don't want to generalize, but I feel some men are designed for daughters. My dad was designed for daughters, if that makes sense. Like that was his. He would have been a great dad to sons too, but he was really. He was so about us. Like if we wanted trucks, we got trucks. We did science projects together. If we wanted a doll one year, like, you know, he, the gender that he didn't treat us, like he treated us like kids that he's like, you know, no matter whether you're boys or girls, you grow up, the world is your oyster. You, you are in control of what happens to you. Like he was, that was his kind of mantra. So what was a man. He, he sounds way ahead of his time. He was. Yeah. And like mom was too, because like mom was very like, 
you know, and I adapted, I joked about this as well. Like when Joan was born, I was like, I look after what goes into her. You look after what comes out of her. And basically that's like, that's what my parents did too. My mom's like, I feed him, you do the bottom half. And dad's like, okay. So he did nappies and diapers and everything. And when I tell my friends that they're like, oh my God, my dad wouldn't even know what a nappy was. Like, so he was very involved. He wanted to be. And, and I guess then obviously the loss of someone so involved was huge. And, and, and with that complication, how does that impact on your own parenting value system? I learned, I guess I learned very early in life, which I think some people come to later in life, that you appreciate everything and don't take things for granted. And I didn't take any relationship in my life for granted ever. And I focus and give it lots of time and nurture it and try and be the best supportive person as whether it's a wife a friend a mother whatever it is I try my best because I don't take any of that for granted so with Joan I think I was very I just I paused a lot along the way if that makes sense and had those moments where I did stare at her and kind of go oh my god oh my god I love her so much I'm actually gonna burst I'm actually gonna die so like those moments like you don't take anything for granted and yesterday for example I was doing something and I was working quite late at home and then I was like I've got to stop for a minute just to go up and like and this sounds corny, but just squeeze her and just check in. And, and I often call up going, are you okay? Are you okay? And my husband's like, what are you asking for? I was like, I just want that connection. And hopefully not overbearing to her. But I think I just, I know how quickly things can just slip away and be evaporated very quickly. And so I just want her to have that continual feeling of support and love growing up. And I think the other thing, which hopefully doesn't sound morbid, but I want her to know a lot about her own childhood. And there's a lot of stuff I wasn't able to ask after my parents passed away. And like, even when, you know, she lost her first tooth, I was like, I don't know, I'm assuming I was around (laughs) textbook age or whatever. So I've written down a lot of stuff for her. And I think a lot of people, like a little time capsule in her Gmail. And I think sometimes people kind of go, is that like, I don't know, is it kind of dark, but I do it because I wanted to have it for life. Even when I'm not here anymore, I wanted to be able to go back and go, Oh, that's kind of cool. Like, and I kept a little diary of stuff when we were on mat leave, I was on mat leave and what we did together and loads of information. I have a bit of that because mom kept a diary, but I wanted more. So I've given her loads, if that makes sense. So that might be different because I lost mom and dad. Sure. I mean, it really shows the importance of connection and memorabilia, I suppose, in terms of the keeping track of things and how things are progressing. And, and But there's also the closeness there. There's a real, mm. you can hear it coming through, that, that real that connection is really important to you and Joan and that she feels connected to you and you to her. And I think that's probably because you you understand how precious that is, maybe. Yeah, I think so. And maybe I should look at it that way as opposed to kind of going in a morbid way. But yeah, and I just... I want her to know lots of things about her own childhood because kids want to know that. Like when you're like, what was my first word? What did I do then? And what was I kind of, who were my friends when I was three? And so I've just kept a little document of things for her or quite an extensive document for her that, you know, she can have. So I think that's probably born out of that. Absolutely. I think children actually get something from that. I mean, when you're, when you're speaking to families uh, and some parents are just wonderful historians, you know, they Mm -hmm. have this rich information about how they paint the child's life and you can see child really feels validated by that you know I think uh, so yeah and actually that's that's one thing as well that like I'm so fortunate but my dad took a he did an album a year of our life and so we actually do have quite considering it was the you know the um late 70s they're the 80s like I when I tell my friends that they're like oh my god that's brilliant like so many people are like I have about four photographs when I was younger or whatever but like he did document and it's one album per year and yeah it's great like so we've got our album when we were zero to one and one and onwards and it's lovely to have that 
your dad just keeps sounding like this incredible man. Um, I'm just listening here going, wow, that was in, the, in a different time, how yeah. he was even so cognizant of the importance of that stuff. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, and given that you have that wonderful template from your mom and dad, and, and obviously it was short from the point of view, but how does that, in terms of now, what are the things that challenge you as a parent? Or what are the questions that you have or have the three questions that you could ask? What would they be of how to do this really complex role of being a mom? Yeah, and it's different um, for everyone I know and everyone has different um, challenges. I suppose in my respect is that with Joan, I believe in karma because I think I'm just raising a version of myself. <laughs> and so... <laughs> With her, she is incredibly, oh my gosh, she is so strong-willed and so wearing on that front. But what my big problem is, is that I want to continue to encourage that confidence and that kind of, uh, in you know, the fact that she is kind of questioning things or not going along with things because that will stand her when she's older. But my big thing is now as a nine-year-old in a household that has this daily routine, we need to get out the door, we need to get to bed, all that kind of stuff. How do I get her to cooperate with me a little bit more. I do talk about her and I being on the same team a lot and kind of we're going, or mom and mom, dad, like the three of us, the same team. And we're in it together and we're kind of trying to get through things together. But I do find I don't get a huge amount of cooperation from her from points. And I don't want to go down that road of just saying, stop it and do it. And you know, that way where you're just shutting her down on that front. I don't want to do that because I want that kind of questioning nature and that kind of not going with the flow sometimes to continue on when she's like, like a teenager and she's at a house party and she goes, actually, I don't want to take that purple pill. I don't think I will. Like, you know, that's, mm. you know, that's simplifying things, but I want her to, to continue with that strong nature. I think this is a real interesting topic because I think, I think a lot of people have different views on what cooperation is. And I think when you, if you want compliance or you want understanding, they're the two different things and they're, they're very different tasks. So right. compliance, the best way to get compliance is fear. So from the point of view of like, with the pandemic messaging being, you know, if you don't do this, something really bad will happen. So people are fearful of not washing their hands, fearful of coughing in a kind of an unhygienic way, uh, and, yeah. and fearful of the, the social distance. So it means that you do comply. However, the understanding of why you're complying and unpicking it a little bit doesn't occur with fear. Whereas understanding increase, it would create debate and possible agreement, but it's much more, uh, I suppose, uh, whatever you're having yourself sort of stuff. So you wouldn't get the level of cooperation that you might. So buy-in is crucial. So you need to sell the idea of cooperation to your child. And they need to know why you want them to co cooperate. Because if you think about it, when we're very small, okay. we, we oftentimes just go, ah, 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 don't touch. But we don't explain why. You know what I mean? Right. So, because if you touch that, that will happen. And I don't want that to happen to you. But that sounds a little bit ideal ideology in impractical i mean you can't answer every question your child has simply put, no. uh, <laughs> you wouldn't get anything done because when they're five they have a hundred questions a minute and you know from the point of view of i think we sometimes feel guilty of dismissing children but in the real world you don't have all your questions answered but we'd need to create a time for the important questions to be answered right that sense so if somebody's coming up to you and saying, Dad, who would want it win in a fight between Batman and Thor? Um, I'm not so sure I need to really answer that on the spot. But if, <laughs> if you say to me about, you know, 
will Gaga die because he's old and the coronavirus is around, then yeah. I'll sit down and have that conversation. And I suppose from the point of view of the, the mutual understanding is where you kind of meet in the middle. Like cooperation is, well, I don't want to do this because it doesn't suit me right now. Right. Yeah. Because, and so you have to, as the adult in the room, you have to take the perspective of the child and see what it is and try and positively manipulate their view to take on your perspective. Okay. Does that make sense? See, um, when she was younger, I used to do the kind of give their options, knowing that the end result is one of the things I want to happen anyway, but that's not working with a nine-year-old. <laughs> but you see, she's now becoming, uh, she's got an age of reason now. So she's yeah. nine, so she sees the flaws in your, in your <laughs> philosophy in some respects. Um, so she's able to question things a little bit more. And what we do get is, is a natural non-compliance as a child. And that's a really good thing that a child is questioning something or asking a, a something. And, and, you know, if we think about childhood, it's very black and white. So it's very kind of goodies and baddies, you know, cops and robbers, cowboys, Indians. But then as they get older, it becomes quite a lot more gray. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And so it's important to ask questions about grayness or unpick it a little bit. So when a child is challenging you, in yeah. terms of a little bit and you know the 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 big issue there is is oftentimes around parental control so you know that moment when your child comes back from school and says mom you know that you said the the sky is blue because it yeah. was painted that way well miss flanagan says it's because of the oxygen and gases and and challenges your view do you know yeah. what I mean? that there's so we we always have that moment of oh gosh you know my my, my word is not and it doesn't have the impact that it would have done two years ago, three years ago. But that's good. That's good that children are able to, to do it. But parenting is best when it's containing. So a child needs to feel contained. And that's different than being curtailed. Okay. So they, they have to feel heard. But the, a really important thing, and Alison, I think this is one thing that mm. at, at this age is crucial. If you can get Joan to know the difference between I hear you, but I'm not agreeing with you. Do you yes. Think? So... If she was to come to you tomorrow and say, mom, I want a tattoo. Everyone in my class has a tattoo. And I, if I don't have one, my life won't be yeah. you know, what everyone else's is. And you say, I understand that that must be difficult if everyone in your class has a tattoo. But I'm saying no, because I don't think you are in a position to make that choice. And it's not that I'm not listening to you. I absolutely hear what you're saying. And I empathize with how awful that must feel for you. I'm just not agreeing with you. Because... When it comes to the teenage years, they, they, their sense of being not listened to is yeah. really mixed up with just not being agreed with. And yes. so establishing that from the 9, 10, 11-year-old will pay dividends because if that's a narrative that you can come back to, it, right. it will be around the house party or the curfew or I want to everything else. Time. You're saying, I'm hearing you and I'm listening to you, but I'm just not agreeing with you. And you're entitled to disagree. And that's where being a parent as opposed to being a friend, that's where the difference exists because you're making a decision to contain Joan's decisions by saying, look, I understand this is what you want to do, but I feel this is what you need yeah. to do. And at the parent, as I am the parent right now, that's the way we're going to go with this. I and think with I understand her, that you'll be annoyed by that. I think with her, definitely I noticed a improvement, certainly when she does get that clarity that she is confident I am listening. And when I'm not listening because I'm doing other things, obviously that's when things do kind of unravel a bit. But I definitely, you know, it's juggling. Parenting is juggling and you just keep dropping one ball as you pick up the other. Um, but I did say to my husband about a long time ago, I was like, we really need to maybe set up a situation whereby Joan decides 
because she does want to have a say. She wants to be that active participant in the family where she decides on something and we go with it, but we can still set the parameters of it. And I do find she get, I get cooperation around that for sure. And I think you, you hit a nail on the head there around pacing. I mean, parenting is excessively kind of really good when you can pace the exposure of your child. So your child needs to experience surmountable stress, but not be overwhelmed with responsibility. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes uh, we do like it wouldn't be fair to say to your nine-year-old, okay, you decide where we're going on holidays this year. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> what if we get there? And it's Lanzarote. <laughs> and, and so from the point of view, of it's, it's about giving them a voice, but not overwhelming them. Children don't like being overwhelmed. I can remember years ago when I was a kid, we used to, there was a girl, a kid in our neighborhood, and she was kind of, um, uh, she was able to kind of stay out later than all of us. Do you know what I mean? We were always kind of pulled in earlier and our parents. Yeah. Were. And I remember saying to her years ago, I used to be so envious of you. And she said, well, I used to be envious of you. Yeah. Do you know, because your parents came out and called you in. And I oftentimes, I use that as a reassuring thing that when my parents, my children are disgruntled at my rules, that in some ways they will at some point kind yeah. of accept them and see that there was a benefit in it. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And I, th- I think... I think I am a little bit stricter than some of her closer peers with her. And sometimes that's because there's more than one child and the focus is just in our case on Joan. But I do feel like she will hopefully kind of turn around and go, well, that is all because mom really cared and wanted the best for me. So I'm hoping. (laughs) And I I think I've no doubt that that's probably the case. But again, it is about creating the understanding and the decision as opposed to the fear and the compliance. And again, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's okay to, to, to not listen to everything children say, because I think that's an unreasonable request, but it's really important to pick out the important stuff and not miss that. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And I, I think there's a, there's a lovely saying, I always use it, but the, the more you listen, the less I shout. Do you yeah. Know, there's an investment in hearing yeah. what they have to say. And, and so, so then Joan is like nine, 10, so she's getting this little bit of independence. Any other concerns around that? Well, that's a huge one, right? And I, this is where my, I need a learning curve and I can see it very clearly. And it's funny that even today we had an example of, we share the drops um, with our neighbor across the road, her best friend. And she's now going, look, don't walk me to the car. Like for senior infants, you know, for junior infants, senior infants first, we walk her to the car, buckle her in, give her a kiss, whatever. She's like, don't do that anymore. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, but how do I know you really, you're going to buckle up? How do I trust that you're going to buckle up? And so we stood at the door to let her cross the road and she got and like, this is very minor. And she gets in the car and off they go. But my husband's like, Alison, she didn't want us to go with her. We need to respect that. She, she's safely crossing the road, getting into a car of the people we know. That's fine. So it's letting that go. And then during lockdown, this little boy across the road, they've allowed his parents are um, in separate households they are separated and they allowed him to walk between the two houses and then start to go to the shop with his Revolut card. He's a month older than Joan. And I just, I, my husband and I had a good talk about it. And we let Joan and this little pal walk around the, the corner, like go around the block together a couple of times, but I was not going to let her go further. And then I was like, should I feel, how should I feel about that? And that was a difference in our, in our parenting between that, you know, that little kid's parents and us. And my husband's like, no, I'm all right with that too. So we agreed we're all right with her to go around the corner, but that's as far as it goes now. She's not, not quite as mainly because of COVID to be honest as well, ready for her to go into a shopping environment on her own, unless we're kind of outside waiting for so I need to learn the steps that are age appropriate as a parent to instill confidence and independence in Joan and kind of let that go a little bit myself. That that probably will be my biggest challenge in the next few years, I'd say. And I think you're not on your own with that. I mean, I think I get loads of questions about 
because I talk a lot about the importance of allowing a child to fail. And for so many parents, it's so difficult to, to kind of watch a child make a mistake. And I, I think from the point of view, it does come down to our own sense of control as parents. Like we, we want to be the biggest influence and the big, one of the biggest struggles we have is uncertainty and handing your child over to the world yeah. involves huge uncertainty. Um, and again, it comes down to that kind of idea of the right amount of surmountable stress, but not overwhelming them. And, you know, and, and I think that's time relevant as well. I think it, when I was 11 years of age, I would have walked to school, you know, um, mm-hmm. oftentimes gotten lifts on the road and things like that, and hitchhiked in the 80s and things. If I saw my own children doing that, I would go crazy. Do you know what I mean? From the yeah. point of view of that. But, and we live in different times. So uh, we have to be mindful of that. But I think from the point of view of what we have to be aware of is that when we over do or under trust our children we do discourage them from making decisions Mm -hmm. and I would say that one of the biggest challenges in teenagers now that I would see is indecisiveness they really okay they feel disabled around making decisions and many much reason for that is because they haven't had an opportunity to make a decision so when we kind of over organize our right. like say for example I have a real issue with play dates in the sense that does it disable the child from making their own social arrangements but then the real world issue is that you do have to organize we live in an organized world mm. we don't have we're not in the same planet where people just drop in you know everyone texts now and there's an organization you know it's yeah it's a lot more orchestrated but I just wonder about children's skills of developing social skill sets and developing decision making around that but I do believe we have to encourage children to to make decisions and that may involve them making the wrong decision and mm-hmm. allowing and you know biting our tongue and allowing them to make that mistake will be an opportunity for learning but the bigger issue is around self-worth and I think this is the bit we have to be careful around because when your child comes into you in in the middle of the night and says there's a monster under my bed we oftentimes just say well hop in here then and that uh-huh. puts that issue to bed but what we're also saying is you know, I do believe there's a monster under your bed, you know, in the, in, in yeah. that sense. And so when we do something for a child upon asking, we're almost sending the message that I don't believe you can do this. Do you know what I mean? God, and yeah. That's the issue. I mean, and, and I think there's a, a real worry that we disable their own self-worth, self-belief. And, 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 and I think an approach that might be, look, if things go wrong, yeah I'll be there for you but I want you to give this a shot I want to see how you make a decision here I want to see and you know my my daughter came in only recently and said you know I one of my friends borrowed a marker belonging to me and she won't give it back and I was kind of saying well uh, my first issue is well I'll be into the school tomorrow and get it back to you and then I said no actually you need to get that back yourself to yeah. know let's try this first and if you don't we'll we'll escalate it but I want you to go in and have a discussion and see if you can manage to negotiate getting your pen back. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And it was difficult. And I was sitting here during the day wondering how she was getting on. And it was the first question I asked her when she came out, but she proudly showed me the pen that she had managed. She had to knocked the other kid out, right? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but, but that's yeah. like, I would be often guilty if we're all in a group and an issue arises. Now I'm more aware of it, but I'd be often guilty of kind of going, I'll go over and investigate, talk to the kids, see what happened. And only in the last year, I've been like, no, they can figure this out themselves first. And if that doesn't go well, then I can get involved. But I've had to learn to do that. 
it probably is something we naturally step back from as they're older because negotiation wouldn't be the skill of a five, six or seven year old, but yeah. they might be better at it by the time they get to nine. But I, I, I think, I mean, I can absolutely understand the issue. And I mean, you declared yourself earlier on that you used the word control freak, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. liking things to be the way that you want them to be. This part of parenting is involves uh, absolutely the counterintuitive reaction to that. Yeah. Which is, and like I've started with baby steps. So like years ago, I'd be like, oh, what? I just wanted to wear this outfit because those two patterns clash. And then you're like, Alison, cop on. She's like, five. who cares? So like I've, you know, I've been better in that respect going obviously she's not she's done it for a few years but go get your own outfit on get ready pick whatever so those like those decisions are all but it's just even like as i said today her crossing the road like it's just habit that i would buckle her in or check her or not buckle her in but stick my head in the car and go uh check things out so letting all of that go for sure and i think it's so healthy that she's able to do that i mean you would have another circumstance if she was in sixth class and still insisting that you walk her to the door do you know yeah, what I mean? exactly From yeah. the point of view of that and i think that's that's a re- that should be really reassuring to you, Alison. And it's really unusual because parenting is this unusual task where the uh, objective of it is to become redundant. When you're not <laughs> needed anymore, you've done a good job. You know? um, <laughs> That's the best way of putting it, actually, yeah. But it is. I, I remember when I was nursing, somebody said that to me. Your job is to not be needed anymore. When yeah. you're not needed anymore, you've done it. You've done a good and, job. And as a therapist, that's kind of similar, too. Do you know what I mean? it's, exactly. It's, you're trying to get that that the person can now do what you did for them them, themselves. And so I would see that as a positive. Yeah, absolutely. Her her kind of, maybe I can do it out the the kiss this morning. uh, (laughs) Stuff on the Baron. It's a side of progress. Um, But you know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about actually was in lockdown, I think, as I said at the beginning, I think a lot of people kind of the novelty of the first you know, a few months kind of we got through. And I have to say, I'm very, very lucky in that my working week, is that I can pick and choose my hours across the week. So I was able to do that homeschooling and we were able to do day trips and then my husband's home on the weekend. So we were fortunate that we weren't one of those parents tied to the table for eight hours with three children running around them. It's awful. But what I did notice was because Joan and I had zero breaks from each other and the only time I was away from her was when I'm on air, which is high octane, but not stressed to me, but, uh, you know, deep concentration kind of thing. So I wasn't really getting a break from her. I found... And this is the first time in our lives around July or August, I found I started saying things that I immediately regretted and that my language had changed and my way that I communicated with her. And I really was upset with myself and I was really disappointed with myself because I heard things come out of my mouth and knew that they I was worried that they would have lasting effects on her confidence and would break that tie between us, even though I know it hasn't. But maintaining a positive language when you're really mad as a parent and positive positive messaging is so hard so that's where I feel like as a parent I let myself down and August for some reason was the worst we're much more back on track now that she's in school and I've really copped myself on and gave myself a serious talking to going you remember the things growing up they were very rare probably which is why I remember them but I remember it was not to be mean to my mother but it came from her it didn't ever come from my father but I do remember her saying certain things and that stayed with me for life and I just had one moment in August where I said something and I was like I am worried she's going to remember that when she's like me and she's a mother and she's in her 40s and I cannot let that happen so I really want to manage messaging and you know without being that false sense of you're a wonderful kid you can do everything but that balance it's hard when you're angry or when you're exhausted and this is something I have an issue with and and I think there's probably other people who 
comment in this area who will disagree strong, strongly with me. But I, I think we are wary of, of coming into a toxic positivity a little bit, oh, okay. um, which is utterly unhelpful from the point of view of child, children learning social nuance. If you are in a kind of a calm, robotic, soft voice all the time, even if you see your child drawing with crayons on a newly painted wall, and you're saying, there's a piece of paper over here that you, the child will never know when you're upset or not. So yeah. they won't know how to gauge reaction. And the issue is, it is utterly understandable to get upset. And obviously within reason, but when you're in a cabin fever situation where you're locked down for six months yeah. and you don't imagine that you're going to lose your temper or get angry or get upset over something or react in a way that you're not terribly proud of, it is utterly human to be able to do that. And again, I, I say that within context, but the issue is that children need that. Children need to know where the line is in order mm. to know not to cross it. Do you okay. know what I mean? So, And it doesn't have to be anything uh, greatly dramatic or impactful, but the positive language is important when they deserve it and merit it. And I do believe that the there's an issue around, I think, specialness and that we have to tell every child that they're special. But by definition, if everyone's special, nobody is special. If everyone's special, then special doesn't mean anything. And I think yeah. we need to be really, really careful around. But where the positive language, I believe, is most important is in their self-worth and self-belief, mm -hmm. not in their self-confidence. And I think that's it. So many parents come to me, Alison, and they say, mm. I want my child to be more confident. And I'd say to them, you know, confidence is great because it's how you perform with the outside world. But it's much more important to have a good self-worth and self-belief. And so the positive language is about your internal variables. It's not okay. about how good you are at hurling or how pretty you are or how great you are, how clever you are. It's about how kind you are, how loyal you are. And it comes back to that, that value system of these are the things I value in you. And these are the okay. things that, and, and that, and that positivity is absolutely. But when it comes to behavior, we can't be positive about negative behavior and you, you yeah. shouldn't even be neutral about negative behavior. Again, within reason, you don't lose the rag with it, but there's more learning in aborting the trip to the park because somebody is misbehaving and there's a learning from that than going to the park anyway. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. And I actually yeah. do have a strong memory of something like that happening when we were younger and because it was rare, it stayed with me. Like we were on the way to the cottage and my dad Karen and I were just obviously really, maybe just me, but not acting very well. And he's like, that's it. And he turned around and we didn't go. And the feeling of that whole day was horrible as a child. Like the house was quiet. Every like mom and dad went off and did their own things and let Karen and I just sit and think. And it was horrible. And I have such a memory of it. But again, we can easily associate that with trauma, but we also might associate it with learning. Yeah, um, I, we took learning from it for sure. Yeah. And again, I'm not asking parents out there to be you know, volatile or anything like it. And, you know, consistency and being predictable is crucially important, but it's a goal. It's it's something we strive for. It's not something we ever we will be able to achieve. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Just because we, we can't be perfect parents all the time. The perfect parent and the unicorn have something in common. They just yeah. don't exist. So from the point of view of, or if they do exist, I haven't met one. And yeah. I think from the point of view of what we need to give ourselves a break and we need to be able to understand that we're human Children are not going to be traumatized because you got cross. But what we do need to do is, is acknowledge the bits where we get too cross. And yeah. there's moments where you have to sit down and I've done it and said, look, that reaction was more to do with what I was going through at the time rather than what you did. 
I've um, explained that to her too. I think I felt really badly, as I say, that period in August, because it was just, it was about four or five, maybe three or four incidents. And I just, I could hear myself saying things and I was like, no, whereas before I was always so good to remove myself from her, scream into the fridge or something and then come <laughs> back. But I really felt I let myself down. But I, 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 I think what I did do is re tell Joan that I didn't mean it and that those words were just words and I said them and they did hurt her, but they do not reflect how I feel about her or who she is. So I, I did have that conversation afterwards, but you feel wretched. You feel really bad. And I, I was talking there, I can remember a conversation I had with my mom one day where she said, you know, I love you because you're my son, but I'm really disliking what you're doing at the moment. And I was able to separate that. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I think it was, it stuck with me because, not because it was traumatic, but it made sense. Uh, we're, we're, we're just running out of time here, Alison. I could talk to you all morning. This is <laughs> I think that there is a theme in what we've talked about, and it is a little bit about Jones growing up. Yeah, um, exactly. I think there's a bit about her transitioning into a position of independence and whether it's, you know, how do I negotiate with her and hear her voice, but still get her to do what I need her to do? You know, how do I, you know, maintain a degree of independence for her with also keeping her safe? And not, yeah, you know, and it's going to be that. a balance for a few years, for sure. And this is the tricky bit, but this is an important piece. And I think this, the, the tweenager phase is crucially important to try. And this is where your, your relationship as a parent changes from being the ideal to the uh, utterly useless. And it's, <laughs> the management of that is, is important, but... And no doubt that that Joan's connection to you is so strong that it will it'll benefit from that. And and, and you know the parent child relationship isn't created in a conversation. It's a created yeah. in a relationship over years. It's a yeah. it's a fulfillment based activity, not a gratification based one. But yeah. it sounds to me that you've done all that spade work there, and you're you're well positioned. But well, I you've given great points. Like you really made such clarity on all of those points that I was wondering about. It's like, thank you. So if you've helped me, you're going to help people listening. <laughs> and, and I think for anyone listening in there, who's, I'm sure there's thousands who listen to, who experience the same thing. It is about keeping check of our own need for control and seeing, am I making this decision for me or for my child? And which, you know, yeah. if I can bear a little bit of the uncomfortableness to benefit them, maybe that's the way to go. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, it'll be a good skill for me to learn over the next little while. And I've learned it in baby steps, but you know, I certainly will be challenged more in the next few years by it. Alison Curtis, it has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your honesty. And I learned so much more about you, Alison, than, than, than our previous meetings have ever kind of shown me. But um, it's absolutely a lovely joy to talk to you. And I look forward to chatting to you on your show again. I just really want to thank you for given the time to all of us to share those insights and look, be safe, take care. And we'll talk to you all soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. That was the wonderful Alison Curtis there. And as we know from the conversation with Alison, I think the theme about, you know, being an attentive parent without being an over controlling one is one we all struggle with. And especially when children hit that kind of nine, 10, 11, where they start to develop a bit more independence. It is probably the time that we need to step back a little bit and allow them to evolve and grow without overwhelming them. And from the point of view of that stepping back process isn't easy. And the other issue around positive messaging, look guys, we're gonna get it wrong. As parents, this is gonna happen. We're gonna lose our cool from time to time. Chances are that's not going to have a lasting effect on our children. But what we need to do is just kind of manage it and repair it where possible. Remember everyone, parenting is simple, just not easy. 
And thanks very much to everyone for subscribing, listening, sharing the episodes. And as always, you can get in contact with the podcast here for the next listeners' questions, which is at askingforaparent at gmail.com or at Twitter on at askingforaparent, number four, not F-O-R. And you can contact us through the Instagram and Facebook pages. And we look forward to answering all your questions and getting to the next topic. But until then, keep safe and bye for now.